Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney, and this is another very special episode. I know I throw that out a lot, but uh, this is the third anniversary of We Are Movies. It's been quite a ride. We're almost at the length of an entire presidential term. Um, just one more year to go, and um, I could not have done it without you. Thank you so much for listening this whole time. Um, all my loyal fans. <laughs> uh, actually, I look at the numbers, and it really seems like I don't have a whole lot of loyal fans. Just people that um, search for their favorite movie and then find that. So, like, uh, the Spirited Away Howl's Moving Castle episode is, like, at the top. Um, meanwhile, like, Dirty Work is at the bottom for some reason. Um, so get those numbers up. If you're here, if you're here cause you're a big fan of this movie, uh, go back and listen to the dirty work episode. Um, and, uh, all the other ones too, while you're at it. Um, per usual, the yearly tradition on our anniversary is to have back on Matt Ottinger, who was the very first guest on we are movies. Um, one of the most knowledgeable, people I know, uh, one of the most articulate, um, interesting people to talk to and listen to. And, um, you know, if you're from our community, if you're from the area, you know, Matt, uh, if you ever were on or watched Quizbusters back in the day, you definitely know him. Um, he's also, as I've mentioned before, cited in many books that have been written about, uh, the history of game shows. Uh, also speaking of which he is a two-time uh, competitor on Jeopardy as well. So, um, I'm just honored to, uh, have him back yet again, uh, his, uh, fourth time on the podcast. And, uh, this time we talked about Kelly's Heroes, which is sort of an old men on a mission film from 1970 featuring an all-star cast, uh, Clint Eastwood, Don Rickles, Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland, uh, Carol O'Connor, um, and a few others too. And uh, it was a lot of fun. This was my first time seeing the movie. And uh, without any further ado, please enjoy this wonderful third anniversary episode of We Are Movies. It is always funny though the 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 wanting to like preserve talking about certain things off air mm -hmm. um, because if there's anything I hate it's it's repeating something for the audience and pretending that we never said it before. See, my thing is I'm really quick to say, hey, and as we were talking about before we started, I never pretend that we didn't. Right. I said, well, like, like we were talking about before we rolled, you know, Claudia's comedy routine went really, really well, or something That's like right. that. Uh, yeah. And of course, of course, all the greats, you know, Letterman and and probably Conan and all the rest of them, never spoke to their guests before the show started. That was just oh, really? that just didn't. Oh no, they didn't they do might, the pre-interview. You know, they oh the 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 hosts themselves wouldn't. Oh okay, they uh, have but, somebody uh, else do a pre-interview. Right, and that, at the very least, they might go into the makeup room and say hi, but right. there was no conversation. They saved the conversation for. Uh, for the show letterman notoriously didn't even talk to his guests during the commercial breaks oh wow which was disconcerting I, to a lot of them right yeah i've i've heard jimmy fallon told a story the very first interaction he had with letterman was letterman just waving to him from behind his desk before they ever talked on air there There's you a go little wave yeah um, yeah 
I, I, um, I, do, it was pretty funny just now how you went like the greats, like Letterman, and then you motioned to me and said, and even Conan, and even Conan, <laughs> due, to, due to my controversial see, Conan. I, no, it's take. it's it's not controversial. It is absolutely a generational thing because sure. I know people of your era who think that Conan hung the moon, which is useful in late night. Uh, right. it, it, that he is the be all and end all. I mean. I'm so old that even Letterman, I said, wow, he's just as good as Carson, you know, that kind of right. thing. Well, but it, Letterman was my guy. Letterman was absolutely my guy. And I think it's a generational thing. And Conan was definitely, I mean, if you ask Conan who he looked up to, he'll <laughs> oh, say yeah. Letterman. Well, and it's, and it's certainly something I'm not, like, I'm not completely naive to the fact that when Letterman began, he was quite subversive. Like, sure, sure. there's a, like the old, the old late night. I've, I've watched a lot of clips from that and how he would he really kind of shook up the formula and made it, I think, a lot more casual than it was before then. And the, the so, most yeah. <laughs> the most remarkable transformation you will ever see is Letterman's first episode on CBS because he chose to he he is a broadcaster, right. which is what it takes. Uh, you know, Fallon, for example, is a pretty decent comedian, but he doesn't have those other skills. Um, Letterman wanted to be Carson and he was an anarchist on his own show on late night. And when CBS said, okay, you can be Carson for us, he became Carson. And I don't want to say it was overnight because there was like a six month gap when he left the NBC show and got ready for uh, late night. But when his first episode was revelatory about, oh, well, I'm 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 wearing the big boy pants now. Yeah. This is how I'm going to behave. Time to grow up. Right. And for <laughs> a lot of you, that that made him establishment and that made him not not as funny. But it was a remarkable thing to witness. One of the things I've always and I promise we'll start talking about movies eventually. <laughs> I, <laughs> this is fun, of, too. This is there's always got to be pre-show banter. Um, right. I, uh, I one of the things that I always uh, admired about Letterman was the fact that he at one point resigned himself to the fact that he wasn't a comedian. Like he's a, he was a funny guy. He's, he yeah. is a funny guy, but he basically, he said like, yeah, I've tried stand up. you know, he used to do it at the comedy store, obviously. Sure. And then just said like, but I, that's not what I am. I'm not, not a stand up comic. And, and so he doesn't, I, but I think that enables him to be such a great host because sure. of the fact sure. that he, he's not the guy, he's not the joke teller all the time. And- he freely admitted many, many, many times that the best comic he ever saw was Jay Leno. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was absolutely, he was the funniest guy on a stand up stage is Jay Leno. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I think it's been, it's very clear to people now if they've heard your previous three episodes or if they know anything about you. I, I, I think a large part of your public personality is, uh, and I say public because I think, I think a full personality is multifaceted, but I think your public personality is defined by a couple of very key things. Okay. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's, uh, it's old TV. Um, sure. uh, and I, I don't want to blanketly say old, but it's, I mean, it's definitely, I think, I think your interests are like right from like, uh, when I, when I see you talking about TV, it's always between like the, the fifties and the seventies or eighties. <laughs> um, sure. I, I'll uh, accept that. Yeah you uh you love i mean obviously you love game shows right you love star trek this has mm-hmm. uh come up um and then obviously like i, I mean I, I am i right in then saying like in broadcasting in general 
you seem to just always have uh, a love for? I knew when I was old enough to know that you needed to do something when you grew up that I wanted to be around broadcasting. I knew from the, from the moment I was aware of what a television was, I said, yeah, I want to do that. And certainly I haven't had the heights of a Hollywood career, but I'm very happy with the way things have turned out. I got to host my game show for, for several decades and I've, I get to do this uh, for the Okama school system. And uh, I just love, love, love communicating with people this, this way. So yeah, yeah. So, and, and that 50s to 80s period, you know, I grew up in this, I was born in 1960, but I was fascinated by the history. So shows from the 50s and shows from the 60s that I don't necessarily remember watching are very important to me. And then the 70s was when I was of age to appreciate what was happening. And right. this movie we're going to talk about was from 1970, and that plays a very key role in, in all of this. Well, the... the first question I was going to ask is that I think a lot of the movies you've talked about here have been movies that do sort of scratch a certain itch for you in terms of your niches and ter- mm-hmm. uh, obviously the, you know, Star Trek is Star Trek. Um, uh, the stunt man uh, about, you know, filmmaking about production. Um, and then um, that thing you do, also being about show business and yes, it was yeah. its own way and and also a, a period piece too uh, taking place in in the 60s um so i guess that that was my first question is is with this one with kelly's heroes which i i have to respect ever since star trek star trek was too wrath of Khan was the only movie you proposed for this that i had already seen uh-huh. um every movie since then have been movies that i haven't seen um and uh uh you picked kelly's heroes and so i was wondering with kelly's heroes what what itch does this movie scratch for you? When you first saw it, what, what were you taken by? Do you think? That is a spectacular first question because it made me start to think about the choices I've made on your show. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> Outside of Star Trek II, which is always going to be my first choice for anything, I had picked a couple of movies that were about the process of creating some form of media, some, some form of broadcasting. And I could name several other films the first one that springs to mind is my favorite year that I could have easily mm-hmm. picked the the Peter O'Toole film, which falls into that category. A lot of my choices definitely fit into that category, and Kelly's Heroes absolutely does not. And on paper, it makes absolutely no sense for what I'm normally interested in. I don't care for war movies. Mm-hmm. I don't. I checked because I was curious about this for my own uh, curiosity. I checked my relatively small collection of yes, still DVDs. And it's the only war movie in the, in, in, in my collection. I don't have, I I don't own it. I'll own any movie that I really like. And there's not another war movie in my collection. It's, it's just this one. Now it's not a traditional war movie in a lot of senses, although it looks like one Um, it's funny and it's a surprise uh, it's one of those films that now I didn't see it in its original run. I would have been 10 years old. Uh, so I saw it later and, 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 and put it in its context, uh, contemporarily. And what is interesting about it to me is that if you go into it, not knowing what it is, which is one of my favorite ways of going into it, into any movie, it surprises you. 
My favorite example of that is that in 1980, I think it was, I went to go see Airplane mm. in the movie theater. Right. And in the 70s, the airport movies were very popular, very serious uh, disaster films. I went to see Airplane not knowing it was a spoof. <laughs> right. And that was such a spectacular experience to have gone in not knowing and then realizing, oh, my goodness, this is a completely different way of telling stories. And, of course, it led to all the stuff that they did. Kelly's Heroes, on a much smaller level, does that. It looks like a war movie. It, you look at the cast, and it's got Clint Eastwood, and you say, yep, Clint Eastwood, yeah. this is going to be a serious war movie. Telly Savalas, yep, oh, yeah. okay, Telly Savalas, serious war movie. Back then, Carol O'Connor, serious, pretty serious actor. And then Donald Sutherland, Donald, Su but then yeah. Donald Sutherland, you say, no, wait a minute, Donald Sutherland. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, all right. Yeah. He's uh, And then, and then, and then wait, the Don Rickles, wait, wait, Don Rickles. <laughs> yeah. Don Rickles. What kind of movie is this? And you find out that it's a little subversive, but it's also very funny and it's not a war movie. It's a caper film. And I love caper films. Caper films, I've got a lot of in my collection, starting with The Sting and working down from that. All the Oceans, I have Oceans 1 through 10, much less Oceans 11. I mean, I've got all <laughs> the Oceans movies. And, uh, and I, I, so I love a caper movie. And I think that if we think of this as a caper film instead of a war film, I think that's the itch that it scratches. Long answer to your first question, but a great question. No, I, I, I understand that completely. I mean, I think this is a movie that even though it like, you are right in that it's subversive. I think it still accomplishes the multiple camps that it exists in. Like it is, it is a comedy and, it, and it's funny and, and it definitely works as a comedy. And at the same time, I do think it is a successful men on a mission film um, in the way that, and I was like, and that, that's one thing that I was excited about. So I had this Blu-ray actually, I bought this at 7-Eleven a couple years ago. I've had this for a while. So you've also got Where Eagles Dare. Then. Yes. It'd be all marvelous, marvelous. Exactly. It came in a double feature with Where Eagles Dare uh, from the same director, mm -hmm. uh, Brian G. Hutton, um, also starring Clint Eastwood. And right, right. I mean, Where Eagles Dare is an example of like, that's much more of a straight war adventure film. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I was raised like uh, The Great Escape is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, the Dirty Dozen, like a, a lot of the movies that... What I remember watching at my grandpa's house on AMC, I'll, I'll like have a, a soft spot in my heart. And Kelly's Heroes um, still does scratch a lot of those itches too. Like it still has those aspects. It still takes parts of the story seriously. Um, and then it's, it, but it's willing to also be a comedy. Like the fact that it's a comedy doesn't undo the genre elements that also work in the movie. And that's one thing that I really loved about it. I think you're absolutely right about that. It looks like a major studio war picture looked like back then. Yeah. It was on the edge of that, that kind of movie making was on the way out. Let's do the timeline for a second. We were talking about Donald Sutherland. Right. MASH had come out six months before Kelly's Heroes. Wow. And that was an obvious screw you to war that's the end of the war movie that's match. the that's the yeah. end of the war movies <laughs> and this one came out six months later yeah 
So that's an interesting timeline there. And, uh, and of course, you've got Donald Sutherland playing essentially a hippie in World War II, which is right. fantastic. Totally anachronistic. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, but it looks like what the studios were putting out, it looked like in the 60s, it looks like a John Wayne movie. It really does. And, it, and yes, where Eagles Dare and, and the other one, you know, and Dirty Dozen, all that kind of stuff, it's, it's a war caper film that can be taken seriously. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you've got all that marvelous humor. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me a little bit, and 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 this would not be this would not be my podcast if I didn't somehow find a way to squeeze spaghetti westerns in, um, which should be easy oh. in this case. It's a Clint Eastwood film. Obviously. Absolutely. Uh, but in a way, it reminds me. So the, the spaghetti western at the, at the exact same time underwent a very similar transformation where they had succeeded on their their the the vibes and the the very clear iconography of what made a spaghetti western from like the 1964 up to 70 and then shortly after that you had a movie called um they call me trinity which came out starring uh terrence hill and that movie was a slapstick comedy take on the spaghetti western yeah and then from then on out it was like there was no going back that's what spaghetti westerns were now as we were now we now had to change people didn't want the serious take that we had before um and so and, and there is with with i mean mash which isn't a slapstick comedy it's a it's a very you know sort of an intelligent satire yeah um, dark comedy yeah dark comedy yeah but that like you said that's after mash you can't you can't make those movies again um right. and and this is a there are a few movies like this i think the dirty dozen does this to a certain extent this is one of those movies that's about world war ii but implicitly about vietnam a mm -hmm. little bit where it's literally about world war ii it's about world war ii soldiers but obviously the anachronistic donald sutherland character and the other hippies that he's with and yes the, the kind of the conversations about uh, we don't know what this war is about you don't know what this war is about like we're not even interested in the war that that reeks of the you know that late 60s early 70s attitude following vietnam Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything, everything from MASH on was an allegory of Vietnam. And remember, even MASH was set in the Korean War, right. but it came out as the Vietnam, as this did, as the Vietnam War was happening. Yeah. And you, you talk about the spaghetti. I was hoping that you were going to mention the spaghetti Western. There's a glorious, yeah. near the end of this film, a glorious nod to the spaghetti Westerns when the three characters come at the German uh, tiger. Yeah. And my favorite part of that is you hear the spurs on their boots yes <laughs> jangling and they're not wearing spurs on their boots right it's it's just perfect it's a perfect nod to those films that had made clint eastwood a star you know he had he he had come up the television route with uh was it rawhide i think yeah, yeah rawhide but those those uh, those uh, sergio leone movies made him made him a huge huge star and now he was making the commercial hits. Yeah, well, this was, I think, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was in 66. And then yeah. he came back to the US. Um, and this was kind of right in the, he, this was right before he did Two Meals for Sister Sarah with Don Before, Sarah. okay. Um, yeah, so he was still on the uprise in his American stardom. He had, okay. he, he was a huge, he was a huge star after, you know, those movies, but it, like definitely, I think still on the incline and 
uh, this is only, I mean, it's amazing. You think this is four years after The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, and they're already doing direct allusions to that uh-huh. film and this one. I love, because I love, yeah, you hear the spurs on their boots. I love uh, Donald Sutherland repositions his gun so it's ready for like a quick draw, which is hilarious because it's only against the tiger. Yes, a tank. He's going up against the German tank. Right, right. And he's got his pistol ready. There's no winning (laughs) with your pistol. Um, But then also that score is 100% -hmm. evoking an Ennio Morricone score too. Absolutely. Um, It's a marvelous scene. It's it's one of so many little set pieces that are just, just... I, yeah. you know it's one of my favorite films so perfect i'll say well i mean the the other thing is and i was kind of i was looking at some old reviews for the movie and it was positively received at the time one of the criticisms which i think it's kind of funny to say this is a criticism was basically a, a, accused of being um a roadshow movie with uh with no artistry was kind of the, the argument which is that because the roadshow movie was something that kind of predated this right it was those long three-hour epics that would come out in usually in 70 millimeter they'd have an intermission they'd give out a program um movies like gone with the wind were shown that way sure Uh, lawrence of arabia to get closer to our time period here yeah exactly yeah and so they were uh they were saying like this is wants to be a roadshow type movie presumably because it's long has a big cast uh, but then they they were just saying like, oh, but it's just a, a robbery movie and it's silly and it has explosions. And um, and I read that review and I was like, I don't see the problem here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 that sounds great. <laughs> the director himself, and I, I can't remember his name. You've got you've got his name there. Uh, Brian G. Hutton. Right. He freely admitted that he was not an artist. He was very much a mechanical, this is the movie you want, this is the movie I'll give you kind of guy, and didn't enjoy the process. He quit making movies not too long after this, and came back in the 80s and made a couple more very much in the same style, including one of the best ripoffs of Raiders of the Lost Ark you're ever going to see. Something called High Road to China that Tom Selleck starred in, that turned out to be this guy's last film. But and along the way, he was not trying to get an Academy Award nomination. He was he was making the movie he was given. It, it is a perfect example of like commercial filmmaking done very well. And um, so many people are offended by that. Right, right. And no, that's what this is. This is a commercial film. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely. And uh, I want to get to, because you've, before this, before we started recording, you posted something a little while back, and you, you alluded <laughs> to this. Uh, you, you wanted to say something about Clint Eastwood's performance in this movie. I, I, I think I assume comparing him to Michael Caine in a Muppets Christmas Carol. Is that absolutely, correct? that's okay. absolutely right, and that's what makes this so great. Is that Michael Caine uh, gave the best human performance in a Muppet movie, and that's <laughs> anybody who's watched the Muppet movies will say, "Well, of course he did." And that's because he took it, how, how, how can we, we swear on this show? Oh, yeah. Because he took it fucking seriously. You know, <laughs> when you watch Michael Caine, by golly, he's not acting against pieces of felt. He has his character and he's doing his thing and he's treating this like something serious. And that's what Clint Eastwood does in this movie. He is not, at this point, known for light comedy. Right. Eventually, he would make movies with an orangutan and, <laughs> and you know, Burt Reynolds. Yeah. But at this point, he's not known as a comedian. 
So he doesn't try. Now, Carol O'Connor wasn't known as much, it was not well known as a comedian, but goes completely over the top with his little performance. Yeah. Even Telly Savalas, his delivery is just a little heightened. Everything's just a little bit more with him. Uh, Donald Sutherland, of course, is completely off the rails. And what a wonderful supporting cast. You've got Gavin McLeod before anybody mm. knew who he was. You've Harry got Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton before yeah. he had the Harry in his name. Yeah. Uh, he just billed as Dean Stanton. Stuart Margolin, who would end up playing against uh, uh, James Garner in the, in the Rockford Files and a lot of other oh, yeah. stuff. All these guys who would go on to be very, very well-known people. I also noticed, man, I forgot his name. I need to find it. The The guy who plays Cowboy, I recognized uh, uh, Jeff Morris, who plays Cowboy, uh-huh. also played Bob in um, from Bob's Country Bunker in the Blues Brothers. Oh, one, wow. Who that's chases a, them a, with the good old boys. There were a lot of these guys that I said, oh, I'm sure I've seen him in something before. And that was right. definitely one of them, but I couldn't, I couldn't place him. So anyway... You've got this wonderful, colorful, colorful cast, and they've got colorful, colorful names. They're called Oddball, and they're called yeah. Crap Game, and they're called Big Joe. You know, they're they're Muppets. Yeah. And here is Clint Eastwood in the middle of it all saying, God damn it, I'm in a war movie. And he doesn't break a smile, really. He doesn't he doesn't really react to the funny lines. He <laughs> just does his business surrounded by all the craziness he doesn't dispute the craziness he doesn't try to tamp the craziness down he lets the craziness happen but that's not his role yeah he is kelly and he's not he's not he doesn't have a fancy name either he's kelly <laughs> he did not crap shoot he's kelly yeah. and i i love that he's so serious in this otherwise in many cases really goofy movie and that's where i that's where i say well that's like michael kane did in the muppets there you go yeah that's a great point and i and i can see so many other actors and i think this would also happen a lot with you know people who are known for something serious and they kind of but they're a big movie star i could see so many other actors wanting to take that spotlight like mugging and 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 trying to go bigger and i think that clint eastwood and look clint eastwood i love clint eastwood he's not He's never been known for his range <laughs> as a performer. <laughs> um, but that's something that works really well in this movie. He's a very gracious straight man in a comedy. Yes. And, yes. and it's effective that way. I do like when when uh, Donald Sutherland says something wacky and it just cuts back to Clint just kind of scowling, just yeah. kind of looking yeah. like a little like, okay, let's move on. That's a funny beat. And it's like mm-hmm. any, I can see so many other actors trying to match Donald Sutherland's energy and that, <laughs> and that would ruin the scene, you know? And the only, the only one who was, who was that manic was probably Gavin McLeod's Mor- Mor- Moriarty. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, but of course, as a sidekick to that, it was, he was, he was one of that gang. He was right. one of those oddballs. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I do. I, I forget the exact line. There is, there's a line shortly after Donald Sutherland as oddball is introduced uh, because, you know, he's the one who's supplying them with these, with the tanks that they need for this job, which by the way, I guess to people who aren't watching the plot is that um, <laughs> people who I, just, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta right. stop you. I gotta stop you right. because I love this. We do this every single time. And I don't do. know how many, how, how often you do it with your <laughs> other guests. We just dive into talking about the movie. Yeah. And your listeners are just along for the ride. If you've not ever seen Kelly's Heroes, you better pause this, go right. back, watch Kelly's Heroes, and then come yes. back from the beginning. So now 
30 minutes in or however however long we are tell them what the movie's about Johnny. well the movie is about uh a bunch of soldiers in world war ii uh clint eastwood is kelly who is sort of a, a disgraced soldier he was scapegoated after giving and this is something that isn't totally dived into but it's it's part of his uh part of his backstory is that he was scapegoated by the army because he was given orders uh to attack and then they ended up um taking out their own guys basically um and so um he's very disenfranchised with the war um he ends up finding out from a german uh colonel that he gets drunk after capturing him that there is a bunch of um gold hidden in a, a german bank um south of uh i forget the name of the city um but uh, uh basically he puts a team together uh, to go steal this gold and um, you have a variety of characters um, I think that Telly Savalas is his sort of his right hand man who's also his he's the one who's kind of the I don't know about this character he's mm -hmm. the one who kind of the whole time is is sort of against this um, Don Rickles I think when he's introduced he's supposed to be a bit of like the pencil pusher guy a little bit um, and then I uh, Donald Sutherland is the hippie and the wild card, and he's the one who is providing them with the the tanks that they need. Um, and when Donald Sutherland is introduced in his first scene, uh, there's a line he has where he says something like, "Oh, the the men and I have something like planned this evening. We like we we can't leave until tomorrow." <laughs> and then Telly Savalas is like, "Like, well, what do you have planned?" He's like, "Well, if you want to know, you can come." And he looks disgusted. And there's a very intense. Uh, implication that it's an orgy probably right and then and then the clinician would just shrug his shoulders okay right tomorrow night exactly just tomorrow <laughs> night. Okay. whatever all right <laughs> yeah it's a perfect reaction yeah uh, yeah i'm mike and i'm allison we've both been guests on we are movies before we love talking movies with johnny but i'm a jealous boy you are that's why we've decided to talk movies with, with each other. other we started our own podcast called you, you made, made me, me watch. watch each week we make each other watch a movie the other has never seen you made me watch new episodes every friday uh, i was kind of surprised that rickles in the movie like he, he's funny but he's not the comedic character like when I think no. of the most over-the-top comedic performances in the movie, I think of uh, Sutherland and I think of Carol O'Connor. Sure, um, sure. Who? Sorry, go ahead. Rick, Rickles was in an interesting point in his career. He was very, very well known at this point for his stand-up. He had started, I mean, you know, you, you, stand-up comics did not immediately become nationally famous back then like they do now. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they would be in clubs and, and clubs weren't televised, but Rickles had become very famous for his appearances on Johnny Carson's old tonight show and mm -hmm. everybody knew who he was and he was trying to get more notice. So he would make, he'd make tons of television appearances and he would also make movie appearances. This movie is after his glorious run in those beach blanket bingo films <laughs> where he was the comic relief in what was already theoretically a comedy. So, uh, so this, he, he did like to be taken seriously as an actor. It's hard to say how seriously you can still take him as an actor, but he did like to be in roles where he did more than just be the goofy, funny one. And I've seen that a couple of times when stand-up comics move into acting, they don't immediately go for something that's like a vehicle for them or something where they are simply written to be, to do their stand-up. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I recently I, I watched 48 hours again for the first time or not for the first time but for the first time in a while um and that's a movie where you're I was like shocked to realize like Eddie Murphy is not doing comedy in the movie it's just he's kind of a funny character he has the charisma of a stand-up comedian but he's being utilized in a story that's not that's not a comedy that's um, a great that's a great example because certainly the television world is full of people who uh the tim allens the jerry seinfelds the right. the, the 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 everybody Raymond, Ray, Ray romano <laughs> all of them yeah. who had their act and then they took that you know uh, drew carey was another one so roseanne i mean on and on and on and on and on this all the shows comedy. are just named after the person right exactly <laughs> it's this person's show and it's just their comedy brought to television and the really good ones will will not do that they'll go in a, a not a crazy different route I remember going to see uh, Bill Murray in The Razor's Edge, the Somerset Mom, very serious, very depressing story. Yeah. And this, you know, he was coming off of uh, Ghostbusters when he made The Razor's Edge, and it was just a complete jarring thing. So there's a way of finding your niche, and you're right, Eddie Murphy did it perfectly with, with, uh, with 48 Hours, and then could loosen up a little with Beverly Hills Cop. Right. And 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 uh, and on and on like that. And then he ended up making the really silly comedies. Well, yeah. Then eventually you land on yeah. Buddy Professor and yeah. Pluto Nash and yeah. <laughs> everything. Um, so but... Rickles really enjoyed the acting process. Uh, you know, Casino is another uh, another great example of him yeah. wanting to be part of the acting gang. Well, he doesn't have a, any lines in Casino, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, That's... I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen it. I just know he had a really... He, he liked talking about the fact that he was in a Scorsese movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story with Casino because he he's in a lot of scenes. He's like standing next to De Niro in a lot of scenes, but I don't think he has any lines. Oh, how about that? And Scorsese famously said, um, I've always like, and Scorsese's kind of almost known for casting comedians and supporting mm -hmm. roles in a lot of his films. And he's like, I always like, like to keep a comedian at hand because they're good for the set, for the atmosphere. They're fun to have. And so that's the main reason Rickles was there. Cool. <laughs> and so he has, you know, he's in a lot of the movie, but doesn't talk. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I thought he was great in the movie. Um, Carol O'Connor, I was, I was waiting for him to show up watching the movie. Um, mm -hmm. I was like, what? Because he's not in the he's not in the team of guys, and I only know. So I only know Carol O'Connor from TV. I, I only know him sure. from um, obviously All in the Family, and then his show of In the Heat of the Night. Right. Those. Um, and so, but then once he shows up, and he he's one of those like he, he's like the shark from Jaws, or he's uh, or, or to I guess to compare him to like a comedic performance, like how they use John Belushi in Animal House or something where they're like, we're going to use him conservatively. He's going to be here. Mm -hmm. He's going to be here and he's going to be here. But when he's on, he's, he is on. And from his first scene, I was like, Oh, that's where he's going. <laughs> like, <Yeah. it's>, <laughs> you know? And again, at that point, he was not known for his comedic touch necessarily. I mean, he had done lighter things, but he was not known as a comedian. And again, the timeline is fascinating. I, I, that's a story I wanted to tell and you've led into it perfectly. Um, movie comes out in the summer of 1970. Mm -hmm. uh, All in the Family premieres, I believe, that fall. Wow. So it's, it's right there. It was close enough. Now, it might have been the fall of 71. I, you know, so we 71. Go back and, it was 71. So it was a, a little bit more than a year. But what 
I absolutely love, it is possible to find, you can actually find it on uh, by Googling, a promotional poster for Kelly's Heroes, which obviously was a couple of years then after Kelly's Heroes had been released to theaters because it pushes the fact that Archie Bunker <laughs> plays, plays a general. Really? Carol O'Connor had become so famous so fast as this character that, oh, look, now we can say, you've heard of this guy. He's in this movie. Go yeah. back and watch this movie because Archie Bunker's in it. And it's a really, really neat sales point to make that really you're going to push that Archie Bunker is in this movie, but that's people hadn't heard of Carol O'Connor. And then suddenly everybody's heard of Carol O'Connor. So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't even a big star. You'd say before he, this movie. he was not a huge star. He was living in England, making, making oh. movies in, in Europe, no, not England. He was living in Europe, Italy. I believe he was living in Italy, mm. making movies overseas. Uh, making movies like this and sometimes he'd be the funny guy and sometimes he wouldn't be the funny he would always be the uh the 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 uh, blowhard stuffy blowhard guy not yeah. completely unlike archie uh and then you know archie just made him made him enormous i mean that was the clint eastwood effect of uh in the 60s if you wanted good roles and you couldn't get them in the u.s just go to italy they had, sure, they had sure. them for you <laughs> i read a story i had not heard this before but before we were uh, gonna go on I, I did some research it was clint eastwood's rawhide co-star that they wanted for uh the good the bad and the ugly and that guy didn't want to do it and they got Clint instead. Well, I think that goes back to Fistful of Dollars, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I'm sorry. 64. See, I, I, you, you yeah. know the spaghetti westerns better than <laughs> I do. Yes, it, yes, the, the the even earlier one. That was, yeah, he was like the 10th choice for that movie. Okay, it was like okay, Henry okay. Fonda was first. And at at so least one of them was his was his co-star in wow. Rawhide. Wow. Who, who, turned, who turned it down. And that, you know, just imagine that could have been a whole different career move. Of course, the, yeah. the history is filled, filled with thousands of those. Right, right. Well, there's a universe, where, yeah, where Clint Eastwood doesn't become. I mean, he's in some ways he's the last one left of that era in terms That's of right. in terms of the big the big names. From sure, the absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he's the. Well, I guess we got we still got Donald Sutherland. I was going to say he's the last person left from this movie, but he and Sutherland. <laughs> one of my favorite things to say about Donald Sutherland, he is almost universally accepted as the greatest actor we've ever had who has never been even nominated for an Oscar. Wow. Is that amazing? Yeah. That, that, and if you try to name anybody, uh, any other really famous actor who's never even been nominated, you don't get much more famous than Donald. Even Richard Gere has been nominated. <laughs> I, yeah. it's, it's amazing how you go from Donald Sutherland to a whole bunch of really contemporary people. Yeah. Uh, you don't really have a lot of these people who were, Donald Sullivan's made 120 films. Yeah. And is highly regarded and respected and he gets good, he gets bad reviews, he gets good reviews, but right. he's never been even nominated for an Oscar. I found that absolutely amazing. That's fascinating. Cause he, he's, I mean, that's an actor with an incredible amount of range. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. Uh, his, I did not know the performance I was getting in this movie. Um, <laughs> just that, it, his incredible commitment to the accent that he's doing, mm -hmm. the very spacey, some of his lines are incredible. Like I love, there's this thing that uh, keeps coming up where he calls, 
he says waves he'll be like knock it out with those yeah. negative waves with those negative waves w- which is sort of his you know that back then's version of vibes uh-huh other really funny like no way did anybody in world war ii <laughs> 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 um but that's great like i love that um and uh and he's yeah because i mean you can, i i knew him before i ever saw this movie i you know i saw him in like clute and uh don't look now and uh, and i in mash and you know, so, I, I never I mean, know what to expect from Donald Sutherland. And, and again, as we said earlier, MASH had actually came out before this film did. Right. I remember seeing Clute in, uh, in a film class in college and being real wow. impressed by it. The first time I saw him as a film goer, just to go see, I remember the first time I saw him was uh, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. And the- he will... <laughs> he will freak you out yeah yes yeah yes. To people to people listening at home i i pointed my finger and i opened my mouth if you've seen the movie you understand <laughs> you didn't you didn't say anything spoiler alert no anyway but yeah yeah it's it, it is a it is a, a it's not a great film but that was the first time i ever saw him in the theater yeah no i, yeah. I well i mean i think my first uh donald sutherland film was animal house so sure, sure. <laughs> speaking of animal yeah. house yeah oh um, yeah yeah um well you mentioned dirty dozen before and yes. he was one of the dozen and so was uh, telly savalas and that telly savalas in this movie i have to say it's a comedy it's it's the first time i think it's the most restrained i've seen telly savalas in a movie uh because in, in the dirty dozen like i had this image in my head of telly savalas i think of him as a very manic performer mm-hmm. um in the dirty dozen it's, he's he's the one he's the loose cannon he's the psycho uh in uh i've seen him he was in a spaghetti western called a town called hell where he's just a shirtless sociopath who's who's punching people all the time and so this was kind of a very humanizing performance from telly now that's very interesting because that's that's again that's your that's your entry ramp that that's your end to telly savalas the world the world my age knows him as kojak where he was the he was the calm center uh as a in the detective show in the 70s with with his his people running around behind him but he of course by that point he had also gotten a lot older uh but i don't picture him that way to me this performance was a little bit louder and looser than i'm used to seeing telly savalas so it just depends on your perspective i guess I do, I do need to watch Kojak. I, I have a funny, brief, funny story about Kojak. I, uh, my, um, I was having a conversation with my dad and my grandpa one time. My dad and I were watching, we, at one point we were watching all of, uh, um, you had mentioned it earlier, The Rockford Files, sure. um, which was my dad's favorite show as a kid. And we were talking about all the great detective shows like that and Magnum P.I. And, uh, and then they were like, oh, one I really loved was Kojak. And I misheard them. And I went and I watched the entire series of Kolchak the Night Stalker <laughs> with Darren McGavin and I, which is and like that, a horror no, show th- this is X-Files stuff here. right that's, yeah and I was like what, yes I was like this is, I don't know this doesn't seem like something my dad would like <laughs> um so I still have yet to see Kojak but <laughs> that's funny at, at least you didn't put yourself out because it was just the one season so there weren't a whole lot of episodes of that right uh but yeah that was a, a completely different series there was also in that same time period an action adventure series set in Alaska that was called Kodiak. So oh. it was very, conf- it was a very confusing time. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Back, back before IMDb too. So people, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's couldn't right. look it up to confirm for themselves. Yeah. Um, so uh, what do you make of uh, the conclusion of this movie where I, I feel as though there's some 
thematic reach being made. It's not like one thing I really like about this movie is that, you know, it, it alludes to certain opinions about war, certain um, sentiments that people had. It's a very, it's, it's, it's in, in the spirit of MASH, but in a totally different direction in terms of its tone and it's, you know, the action it's uh it's sort of anti-war movie because like you said it's not a war movie it's a caper it's about men escaping the war to go profit for themselves um and at the end they make they basically make a truce with the sole nazi soldier left in this town Mm -hmm. uh to basically help them blow the hole open on the um, on the bank and rob the place and there's a little moment with the nazi soldier when he's about to leave and eastwood is like all right, take care. And the Nazi soldier gives him a Nazi salute and then Eastwood just kind of scowls at him and then the Nazi gives him a, a regular salute and then leaves. And I, I was wondering what you make of that little arc with that Nazi soldier at the end. Um, well, that's a great little part. And apparently he's a, he was at the time a fairly well-known German actor. Um, hmm. So he, he was good and had very little to do. Uh, let's let's be clear when we say it's it, it's different than mesh there's no mistaking this is definitely an anti-war film right but then like you say it comes at it from a different from a different angle but not from a different point of view it's definitely saying war bad right now from a plot standpoint you can be left wondering well what happens now Right. because okay they're leaving with a truck full of gold what are they going to go bury it somewhere what what's how are they are they going to drive to switzerland uh, which opens up a different can of worms yeah not that this movie necessarily screams for a sequel but you're not i'm you're left not quite you i as somebody who likes plots right. i'm left a little puzzled at the end of this movie and i don't know if that was a deliberate take or not that we're not supposed to know what happens to them but um yeah i mean it's it's a it's a movie that definitely has its own vibe wave if you will and uh i i, I think it didn't want to be known as an anti-war movie so mm-hmm. it, there's a very satisfying ending it's a trojan uh, horse of a movie a little right yeah. it would have been very easy for this to have been a very cynical movie and for example, they do all this work and they get to the bank and there's a note there from the Germans that says, ha ha, I took it already yeah. or, or whatever. It, it, it could have been a failure, but they give them their reward uh, like a war movie does, like the, like the old fashioned war movie does. You, in the end, in the old fa- in the John, you know, John Wayne survives. John Wayne right. wins the battle. They won their battle for what they were going for. And I think that's where it gets back to being a sort of a sort of traditional ending where it could have been much weirder, much darker, but that's not what this movie was. This movie d- sort of demanded a satisfying ending. And except for well where are they going with the gold? It's a very satisfying ending. Yeah, it's uh it's an example of a crowd pleaser that's still that still maintains that anti-war message. Mm-hmm. I think th- that's part of what, why it's kind of such a cool blend of that, you know, post-Vietnam cynicism with the, still the kind of um, 
the iconography and the expectations, the genre expectations you might have from like an adventure movie from the time too. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's only one, because there are actually a lot of really great action set pieces in the movie. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. it's it's a really exciting movie. I love the moment when, like in the whole climax in that city, when the tiger can't turn around and it's stuck, like the um, it, it's going back and forth and it's like hitting a tree, and then uh, the soldier the, has to get out on top. The stone wall, it can't, yes. it can't, yeah, it can't, right. And then the, the soldier has to get out the top, the German soldier does, and then Eastwood guns him down. Like it's, it, it's, it's a little bit silly, but I love when action sequences kind of put this thought into the little the little moments like mm -hmm. that, the geography of a scene and the the little situations that would arise here. Um, like, I actually think it's very clever and well done. And um, and I mean, it's no secret. I mean, that uh, Brian G. Hutton, I had to look at his name again. I mean, obviously I, th I think he's a very competent action director. I mean, yeah. uh, Where Eagles Dare also, you know, known for like a lot of really great set pieces. Um, but uh there is that moment early on to establish stakes that I really do like where they lose a couple of their men and there's just no, there's no laughs in that scene. There's no right. like, right. you know, there's no punchline afterwards to go, all right, get your chins back up. Let's like, this is a comedy. Like they, they, they let it sit and, but it's also not overly sappy. It's just, uh, we lost some men. That's bad. That's the reality of it. And, and it, it, it would also, I feel, I would feel cheated as if, if they didn't lose men in this movie, in, it, a way. It, in many ways, that's a very uh, almost stereotypical, but certainly very, very uh, normal uh, way of way of, uh, of pursuing a movie like this. You're going to lose some of your guys when the Ger when, when the Germans need to be just the bad guy people to kill. You're going to kill all of them, and you're going to come out ahead. I mean, that's just the way it's going right. to be. When you need a German to be a nice guy, then the Germans a nice guy. Very. <laughs> that that's again that was very much of that era uh and 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 sometimes again you needed that kind of it's not normal right. i mean for heaven's sakes and we're we're talking about this war movie and as we're doing this there's an actual war that's just right. devastating and i don't world. and i don't mean to whitewash right. actual but, but, but that's what the these movies did right, right. that's what these movies right. did these were the good guys and these were the bad guys and if we and you know you'll watch just people get butchered and that's just part of the movie and that's right. the way those movies were and when it needed to be that way that's what they would do and then when they wanted to to remind you that they're sort of winking at us then the then the the turret gets stuck trying to make a turn you know, right. said, yeah yeah um oh, sorry, the, the, another thing we haven't mentioned yet is that is that goofy theme song i yeah the the theme song which immediately threw me for a loop early yes on, when yes. eastwood kidnaps that german colonel and they're driving away um oh i forgot what it's uh it's called burning bridges burning bridges which yeah. you would think a, a title burning bridges okay that's about the war you're burning bridges but if you listen to the lyrics it's just a sappy little song about burning bridges in your personal life and right and and turning your friends against you which yeah. it does not connect to the movie at all but one of the producers mike curb had a had a group he called the mike curb congregation <laughs> and this was the one thing that really that 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 there remotely remember he is still active by the way Wow. Mike Curb is still active. I think there is still a congregation, uh, but by far, Burning Bridges was like their big thing. Wow. And it is such an incongruous thing 
to hit you in the opening credits and then also halfway through when they just need some some travel time yeah. and at the end of course over the credits uh it, but it's it's a delightful goofy thing i mean but thematically on the surface how you said that's it, it's called burning bridges and your image is burning bridges but then it's about personal lives i mean that's a little bit about what the what the movie is right it's about yeah, sure. these men kind of taking the war into their own hands leaving them you know leaving the front lines where they're supposed to fight and trying to profit for themselves like there, there's that that element in the story i i really love that scene where that kind of establishes those stakes when telly savalas is realizing that he's outnumbered that uh -huh. everyone wants to go and a few of them even say like yeah we might die but i'd rather i mean we can either die here or we can die trying to fight for something that helps us and yeah yeah um and that's but yeah i mean it's it's an incongruous song as you said but it, it took me a second i was like is this this doesn't even <laughs> seem right and then but as it plays out you're like oh, okay i get it i I, yeah, yeah. I understand i understand its place in this movie um and how it supports the tone um i i, I and also not to like I, i'd be remiss if i didn't mention the uh the lala schifrin score which is a really mm -hmm. great score on its own too this is the guy for people who don't know who wrote the uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah, Mission Impossible. Dun, dun, um, dun, 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 dun. Right. I, I also, I, I mean, I really love his score for uh, Enter the Dragon, uh, the Bruce Lee film. <laughs> uh, I've always known him for that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, just one of those, yeah, working composers. Um, but I, I think that uh, this it really sticks out. I mean, I don't think Mission Impossible had begun yet at the time am i right that, i think it would be close again the, the the time frame would be close mission impossible i think it was late 60s so i think it would have oh. already aired um yep you're right yeah 66 so it's 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 contemporary with star trek which is how i how i right. know that yeah right yeah okay yeah. um so oh, you sorry, mentioned right. enter the dragon i just real quickly um i once watched enter the dragon six times in a two-day span no way. I was a projectionist in college and I would oh. show films for various groups. And there was a martial arts group that was that, sh that had three showings of Enter the Dragon on Saturday and three showings of Enter the Dragon on Sunday. I watched Enter the Dragon six times in two days. Wow. I have not watched it since. Well, that's that's enough for a lifetime. That's enough. That's <laughs> enough. Uh, that's that's enough John Saxon to have. <laughs> oh, you life. can never have enough John Saxon. <laughs> that's true. At wow. some point, we'll do we'll do. I think it's Battle Beyond the Stars or something. What, what, oh. He was in. He was yeah. in one of. Well, he's in several great bad science fiction films I mean, he made a career of bad science fiction that's but. one thing when, when you really get into the weeds of sort of b horror exploitation action movies sci-fi movies you end up watching a lot of john saxon movies yeah, <laughs> yes, just, you do. yes you uh, do he's in there quite a bit um but uh, i yeah i gotta thank you for choosing kelly's heroes i, I i'm so glad yeah i had I had, I had i had such a good time with it i um and i'm actually i in the last couple of years, I've just been making an effort of going back and watching as many Clint Eastwood movies as I can that I mm -hmm. haven't seen before. Um, it, it was something that spurred a couple of years ago when I watched The Mule in theaters. And I was like, we only got a little bit of time left with this guy. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to be able to say I was a huge fan when, when, when the day might come that he passes. Um, and so I, uh, I just been slowly, you know, going through everything. And so well, I'm glad I finally got to it. I'm going to say, I don't know if you've actually seen city heat yet. It's underrated. 
I haven't yet. I know it's, that's the Burt Reynolds one, right? It's you know, it's easy to make fun, yeah. but it but I remember enjoying it very much in the theater. So yeah, that's that's the City Heat was the was the comedy that he did with Burt Reynolds. It's definitely been on the list for a while because yeah. I also know how much Burt Reynolds was uh uh, jealous of Clint too. Yeah, so yeah I, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- that's definitely been one. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and I, um, it, it is sort of an interesting, uh, this movie and where Eagles dare were, are both very interesting movies early in his career where they weren't Clint Eastwood movies. Like this is an ensemble movie that he leads. Um, and then we are Eagles dare. He's second build to uh, Richard Burton. Right. Um, Which came out first. Right. Yeah. Uh, where he, and, it sorry. was one of those things where, where Eagles dare, was a success and we took the director and we took Clint Eastwood and we made this yes yeah and shortly after this um Clint Eastwood is he's the top billed actor in every movie that he does um once he does his last movie with Don Siegel every movie he does is either directed by him or directed by somebody that he chose (laughs) oh yeah I think I think after this movie after Kelly's Heroes I think he pretty much at this point takes charge of his career yeah. Like, like under his production banner or whatever, everything is. I think right after, uh, if I'm not mistaken, because right after this, the reason he actually, I think, didn't attend the premiere for this movie is because he was filming Two Meals for Sister Sarah. At the okay. Time. And that was, I think, the last movie he did with Don Siegel. And so okay. after that. Well, so, so yeah, right, right then. Right. Yeah. And the very last time he got second billing because it was to Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> okay, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then right after that, it was Eastwood he he runs the movie yep. he's not just starring in it it's his movie um so and that's so many famous ones all the dirty harry stuff uh, those oh, those yeah. two ridiculous movies with the with the orangutan or any every which way blues yeah. Yeah, so yeah. yeah right all, all all that all that stuff and of course then his spectacular career as a director in, in his right. later life you know? well yeah everything amazing he i mean i, I think that there's that amazing sort of uh resurgence post um uh, Unforgiven, uh, where you, you get uh, uh, the Bridges of Madison County. Uh, famously, I forget who said the joke, but uh, I went to see Clint Eastwood in Bridges of Madison County. He didn't blow up one bridge. Uh, <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then just directing movies until, you know, it's like I, I, I want to watch Cry Macho. It wasn't great, but I was like, hey, for for a 91-year-old legend starring and directing in a movie, he can make whatever he wants. I'm, That's I'm not, right. <laughs> I don't really care at this point. He's no, he's paid his dues. He can do whatever <laughs> he wants at this point. And we, yeah. just can, we just consider them little presents. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, I did look up a couple, just a couple reviews for this movie on Letterboxd. Okay. Um, there are only two that I screenshotted, really. There weren't a lot that made me laugh. Uh, there's one one-star review. Uh, that's just this movie is not for broads is the only (laughs) (laughs) well there aren't any broads in it (laughs) there aren't and i was actually interested to read there was originally supposed to be a female lead in the movie i did hear that and and something happened i can't imagine what she'd play right there was a i don't know what her role my assumption and this because i think this is for some reason i just had this idea that this is always the direction they go she Mm -hmm. would have played like a french local 
who a local French woman who, cause they, they do liberate this French town. Right. Uh, who uh, falls in love with Clint Eastwood or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, sounds, that sounds perfect. Let's, was, let's say that's what it was. Right. And there was even an actress who was hired and then she's, according to her, was on the plane to go <laughs> film when she Yugoslavia, was, Yugoslavia yeah, is where they shot it. Exactly. Yeah. And she was told as she was about to get on the plane, she just found out that her role had been cut. And so that's <laughs> awful news. But and in a way, and I don't want to sound, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm anti, uh, uh, you know, representation for women in film. I, I, I do like that the movie is not, doesn't have a, some cliche romantic subplot. I think that right. would have bogged yes, it down quite a bit. It's just very, very, very straightforward action adventure. Funny enough, at nearly two and a half hours, Clint Eastwood has expressed his complaints about the fact that too much was cut from the movie. There are quite a few deleted scenes that apparently he thought added more to the characters. And I would love to see an expanded yes. version of this. Uh, yeah. And, you, you know, this is the era where that sort of stuff happens. Yeah. I mean, even that thing you do, which we talked about uh, a couple of years ago now, my the director's cut. Life. There's yeah. that marvelous director's cut. Of course, in, at, at this point in, in, in filmmaking, you keep, you know, you keep everything. It would be wonderful to find that extra footage and just see yeah. what it's like when you love a movie. Like I love Kelly's heroes. You want to see whatever you can find out about it. And if there's more stuff that's on the cutting room floor, I want to see that cutting room floor. And especially this being one of those movies where you're so in love with the characters, um, mm -hmm. you just want to spend more time with them. Absolutely. You, you don't want to get out of there too fast. Um, now, having said that, realistically, two and a half hours is plenty long <laughs> enough for a movie to be. Yes. Yeah. But now, decades later, when you can pause it and go to the bathroom, I'd like to see that stuff. Uh, so I have one last uh review this is okay. a half, half a star out of five that and i think this is funny because i really don't disagree with a single word said in this <laughs> review um content prohibitive film sacrifices a cohesive and taut story for jokes and star vehicle scenes plot and characters are clear but shallow and unsympathetic okay execution and action scenes o'connor is great has many bad plot holes plot conveniences and illogical story choices bad film rating f um, you see, I could write that so, same thing. And then so I would, what's your point? Would, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would write word for word, I would write the same thing, but then I would write good film rating A. <laughs> That's marvelous. Because, yeah, you, like we said early on, sometimes commercial entertainment just needs to commercially entertain. And sometimes different scientists draw different conclusions from the same evidence. That's so, true too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, was there, uh, was there anything else? Oh, one thing I, I for, oh. totally forgot to mention this oh. based on a somewhat of a true story this movie. Yeah, I, that's true. I mean, I, I don't know how true it was. Apparently there is a book you can buy that, yes. that, that would tell you, that would tell you exactly how much, or it doesn't tell you how faithful this movie is, but it would right. be a book about the incident that this movie is based on. And you could right. tell for yourself how, how, uh, how closely it hewed. I, my understanding is it was a pretty loose jumping off point. Well, yeah, I don't think any of these characters are remotely based on real people. No, no, um, surely not. I, I, I'm sure O'Connor's character is maybe a satire of some real people from, mm -hmm. from the 60s. But uh, I definitely, it's, yeah, it's a movie that basically the true story is that there was apparently a heist of a lot of gold by the American military, apparently working with the French um, and I, I think some of the Germans at one point to steal a bunch of gold during World War II. And that's as, all that's known. As more or less a legitimate military operation, not a bunch right. of renegades 
who decided to go off and do this. Right. But it being 1970, we love our renegades. Oh, yes. We got to <laughs> have our renegades. The, yes. they're, they're going against the, uh, the establishment. <laughs> so, um, were the, Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Before? Oh, I think we, I, I'm glad you mentioned that last thing. I can't think of another thing I was going to bring up. Okay. All right. Um, this is always a joy. It's amazing. Three years now, right? Three years. Yeah. Three years you've been churning these out. How many total? Um, 112 now. That's impressive. That's very, that's, I, I, I admire just the stick to itiveness of it. Wow. I have listened to about 12 I, <laughs> because the other hundred are horror films. I don't care about them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I, I'm, I just want to say how very impressed I am with this. And I remember sitting in school and talking about Star Trek too. And it's a joy to come back every year and do this. All right, everybody, that wraps up yet another episode of We Are Movies. It's been a wonderful three years so far. I can't wait for the next one to get started. I have so many great ideas, so many upcoming episodes um, that I'm really excited about. And I'm excited for all of you to listen to. And um, I'm excited for all the new guests that I have coming up to, as well as the old guests. I think one of the greatest things about doing this is we, we can keep bringing on more people and keep returning uh, to the ones that we love. Not to say I don't love the one-time guests, obviously. They're just harder to get back <laughs> most of the time. Um, but nevertheless, every year, Matt Oniger continues to come back, and I love him for it. So uh, thanks so much to him for coming on and to you for listening, as always. Um, the usual spiel, if you listen to this podcast and you haven't yet, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at We Are Movie Pod. We Are... <laughs> I'm just going to leave that in. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at We Are Movies Pod. You can like us on Facebook, uh, We Are Movies. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Johnny Mockney, J O H N N Y M O C N Y. That is all I have for you today. I'll be back with you very soon. And uh, Clint Eastwood, if you're listening, come on the podcast. I'd love to. I'd love to talk about anything, really. Whatever you want, just just let me know. You can come on. <laughs>